Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Sprints podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In this episode, we are going to look at product-led content from a founder's perspective. We are going to learn from someone whom I've known for a long time, an amazing founder from the land of some amazing SaaS products like Skype, TransferWise, which is now called Wise, Pipedrive, and many more. Today, we have with us Andres Berda, the CEO of OutFunnel, all the way from Tallinn, Estonia. Going by the quality of content on his website, I will certainly say that he knows who his audience is and what to talk about. With that, hey ho, let's go. Andres, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you after a long time. How are you? Hey, doing well. And thank, thank you for uh, having me here. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, definitely this is going to be a great conversation and I'm excited for it. You know, I would like to start today's conversation with something that I really enjoyed looking at you do this on LinkedIn. You know, you fixed this crazy ad about some company talking about their AI-based content uh, by changing scale your content to uh, killing your content marketing. So while I do have my gripes about such tools and how people are using it, I would first love to start with, uh, you know, understanding your worldview of content. You know, give me your perspective as to how do you look at the role of content typically for a SaaS organization? Good question. And then I think before I answer it, I just want to say that I'm a, you know, introduce me as a founder and CEO, but I'm, a, I'm actually a recovering marketer. Like I've been in marketing uh, most of my career. Uh, Outfile is my, uh, is my kind of first time at, uh, at being an entrepreneur and founder myself. And I think uh, being a marketer is kind of being like an alcoholic. That, uh, once, you're, uh, <laughs> once you're a marketer, you can never get really out of it. So, uh, so I think I'll be a marketer until, until, my, uh, until the end of my days here. And then, uh, but that looking at from a founder's perspective, the role of content, I think, is uh, usually two things. Uh, I think one is most companies uh, want leads. And I think that's the... That's, uh, uh, that's nothing new there. And that's how most companies look at content. Uh, but usually there is also something else that uh, content can uh, provide uh, or that the company needs uh, content to provide. And that something else can be awareness or brand notoriety, notoriety, or it can be planting an idea, changing behavior. It can be hiring. It can be fundraising. It can be bringing down a competitor. Usually, I think the more early stage companies, uh, the more content is focused on uh, legion. And then in later stages, uh, with bigger budgets, I think um, companies tend to have more of this other bucket in, in content. But I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's worth starting. I think the role of content is different in different companies. And it just always makes sense to start from the objectives of what you want. So what do you, what do you want this one or two things to be that content provides? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. So what what uh, triggered you to uh, do that uh, landing page, uh, you know, fixing? Because I really enjoyed it. That was the first thing that I saw on LinkedIn mm. on that day. And I yeah. was like, all right, Andres gets it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're now, uh, if all content marketers started using uh, these kind of AI-based uh, automation tools, content marketing would be dead in a month, right? So <laughs> I think it, the only reason why it's not completely dead right now is that it's uh, that we haven't all started using these tools. I like uh, technology. I like uh, AI as much as the as much as the as the next uh, higher girl. But uh, I think producing a lot more content is not going to help anybody. So it, it may help 
this company temporarily, but uh, we are, if we, if we, if we all pee in a pool, uh, it will be a very unpleasant uh, place to swim in. <laughs> I love your examples. You know, this is something that I always remember for a long, long time. This is a fantastic <laughs> analogy. Awesome. Yes, here's an observation about, um, you know, OutFunnel that I have had ever since, I think probably the first time I spoke to you was somewhere around 2019, 2020. And uh, over the years, what I see with OutFunnel is um, you guys have transitioned from from the outside, what it looks like you were previously an entirely inbound engine to now a good mix of inbound and outbound. And um, you've always, of course, invested in quality uh, content that is focused on a very specific audience niche. But can you talk us through about, you know, what led to the transition of being inbound to getting the mix that you have right now? So we're still inbound heavy. So we started out inbound. Uh, our pricing price point uh, in the early results model was very low, uh, maybe too low. Uh, and then we just couldn't uh, afford to uh, justify outbound. We've uh, then upgraded the product and, and changed our prices. Uh, AKA raised our prices. And then uh, we, we now offer a more kind of complete suit. And then we could start experimenting with outbound as, as soon as we could. Uh, so we've done outbound uh, in two ways. One is one use case is uh, finding new affiliates. And it's, it's great for that because they can, you can really justify uh, the, the process and the lifetime value of an affiliate is much bigger than a lifetime of an individual customer. So you can put in more effort there. And then we've also done outbound trials for uh, for the product uh, like self-service products ourselves uh, with mixed success so we can't say that we've made this channel to work uh, i think we are still a bit cheap to uh, to justify going all in without fun but we, we keep experimenting we keep learning right right and um, has the maturity of this category or the awareness of this category to from the people standpoint does it have had an impact of what your marketing mixes today? Of course. I mean, if the more mature the categories, the more category awareness is in the category that you operate, the more inbound uh, searches uh, happen, like the more people are searching for you. But if you're creating a new category, then uh, nobody's searching for you, then you have to be uh, outbound. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And, um, you know, from the outside, it does look like um, you guys at OutFunnel have your own style of creating content. You know, it's not the traditional top funnel, mid funnel, bottom funnel. Of course, you write topics that are important, but it always looks like you're more focused on something that your audience are asking for or the questions that these guys have on their mind. So maybe, you know, if you can take us through the content strategy of OutFunnel and how you choose your topics, what to write on and how do you focus? How do you, uh, you know, maybe, yeah, that's that's a good place to start. Yeah. So we have um, two tracks for content. One track is uh, focused on legion. Um, and there, I think what we do is not nothing very uh, exotic. So we do keyword research, then we uh, we pick the keywords where uh, which makes sense for us uh, and the audience. Uh, then we try to produce the content as best we can uh, to link building, promote it as best we can. I think we do some things better differently than, uh, than others, but um, uh, maybe measuring that is uh, is something we do differently, but uh, but then um, the second track I think is content we we want to produce. Uh, so uh, sometimes uh, there's an idea or a piece of advice or a customer question uh, that you just want to that just should exist in the world, and then we also try to do this. Uh, uh, so content we need to do to drive leads. But the other track is like uh, let's also experiment and let's stay top of mind in the communities that are relevant for us. So it's whether it's HubSpot ecosystem or Python ecosystem or 
or tech people here in Estonia where we operate or uh, SaaS growth marketers, which are an audience for a product. There we try to then just experiment on social media, on our blog, on uh, with events and, and then see what happens. And then uh, we try to keep a healthy balance between the content we need to produce the generous leads and then content which serves our other goals. Right, right. So that immediately kind of begs the question as to uh, what are the, say, for example, two or three things that you typically expect your content to deliver? Is it primarily generating demand or is it you're trying to capture demand through certain uh, keywords that you're going after? Um, so how do you look at it? What are your maybe top KPIs that you measure your content with? So it's really, we're not trying to create demand or generate demand, but really focus on capturing, uh, harvesting demand, as I like to, as I like to yeah, call it. Yeah. Uh, and then we look at, um, at leads that come in from content uh, and then how these convert to then paying customers. Uh, some convert to customers directly and these are easier to measure. Uh, others convert indirectly. So people maybe land on a content and then sign up for an mailing list and then convert six months down the line or a tactic that um, I that we're not currently not using, but uh, that we should start using again. I just heard from a friend who, who works at the, at the bigger uh, SaaS company that for them, one piece of content, which was really top of funnel, didn't convert anybody, but it was a great source for a retargeting audience. Right. So uh, this company was able to capitalize on select pieces of content with uh, good retargeting. Uh, and this was uh, highly ROI positive for them. So it's things like this we want to do more of. And then regards to the other track, so other objectives and goals we have for, con for content, we usually look at the usual things like reach, uh, feedback, um, uh, spread, and then sometimes sometimes just kind of qualitative feedback of, of how uh, an important person. Right, right. No, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. While you have certain metrics, it's also about identifying which source each of these you know leads have come from or opportunities that you have harvested in. Because when you look at typically Google Analytics, which is now almost sunsetting the uh, 3.0 version, and the, the problem with that that I've always seen is when you look at something like direct traffic, it's going to say that X thousands of uh, you know traffic has come for this particular blog post from direct. And the, the mindset is to think that, hey, people either uh, searched for it with these specific keywords or directly typed in the address. But that's not really the case. You know, it's very, very difficult to identify what was the source. So, I mean, you guys are specialists into this. So this is something that we would love to learn from. Yeah. So I think, I mean, analytics tools are uh, really useful, but there's two big traffic sources, uh, direct and organic, which I've, I think are uh, useless. Or like, uh, like it's just they... Uh, include so many different kinds of audiences and channels and tactics that it's uh, impractical to use them for uh, for measuring or for optimizing work. Because I mean, with also with uh, with something which the analytics tools call organic traffic, if organic lands on your homepage, it's a brand search, right? And if they land on a landing page which is not about your product uh, but about the topic, uh, then it's usually non-brand search. And it's if you lump these two together, it's almost like you measure the the average temperature, body temperature in a, in a small hospital where you have pe some people with a high fever and some people are dead. So the average temperature doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so I think you want to, you want to be able to, uh, at the minimum, separate the brand and non-brand organic traffic. And you want to do the same for direct, I think, because if a, if a direct, something which is qualified as, as direct lands on your content, it's not really direct. It's actually 
directly attributable to content which has been uh, shared probably in Slack or in in a, in a community or uh, in uh, in some other ways where just uh, where it has lost tracking. So yeah, we we're gonna we put a lot of effort into uh, saving all traffic sources uh, for new for leads uh, in our database ourselves. And OutFunnel, we have a product that helps with that. Uh, and then and then kind of reclassifying direct and organic based on the uh, referrer, based on the landing page and based on any UTM codes. And usually uh, you get a much uh, more practical picture if you do that exercise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because especially as your organization grows bigger, you know, defining the lead source and attributing it is uh, something that becomes painful. And um, so do you have a process to even define uh, how do you, I mean, how do you go about defining a lead source or uh, you, you spoke about measuring, but do you have a best practice for defining it? Yeah, I mean, we we look at the combination of um, uh, referrer, if it's available landing page and then any UTM codes. And usually if you use these three, you can triangulate where, uh, which, which source a lead should begin. It gets quite technical quite quickly, but I think, yeah, yeah I think, I think the, the overall product team is to make sure that, that you go beyond Google Analytics and have your own mechanism or using a, a dedicated tool for capturing uh, the traffic source for each new visitor and, and sign up and then classifying it, um, uh, at least organic and direct uh, in a more practical way. Right, right. You know, one of the common mistakes that I've often seen people making, uh, especially when they are invested in a typical product-led growth model, is that people don't align the buyer journey with product-led content and then with product-led sales motions. And um, if I'm not wrong, I think uh, OutFunnel has uh, a product called Product Sync, which is more about uh, making sure that the product usage data is available. But Maybe what I would love to understand is, though people have this information right in their CRM, if you can give me some examples as to how content teams or maybe even growth teams can leverage this data to improve the overall buying experience. Because having data is one thing, but knowing to use it and contributing that to the buyer experience is a whole another beast. I think we've all received emails from a company we signed up to. Yeah. Uh, helpful uh, onboarding emails. <laughs> which uh, have no relevance to to what you've already done with the product. So sometimes you've been using a product for uh, for a week, and then you get an email, a helpful email, saying, "Hey, maybe you should add your contacts, or maybe you should do the thing which you've already done a week ago." Which I think, I mean, I, I don't think I've stopped using a product because of that, but it really, I think, uh, changes how I perceive a product, or, or like also like why we read it. Uh, uh, we've been not, not mentioning any names, but. Uh, uh, one of the one of the famous document signing products, which we've been using for five years, recently started uh, cold emailing me to see if we wanted to get a demo of the product, which I've been paying for five years. So, so I think uh, so having product data in uh, in a system accessible to both salespeople and marketers, I think is critical. Uh, the way most companies or many companies do it is they sync uh, their product data to the CRM, which then is a single source of truth. Sometimes it's a data warehouse, sometimes it's uh, another setup, but uh, no matter what the technique for that, but the main thing is that both marketers and salespeople can can plan their activities knowing what people have done with the product. And also, of course, knowing what people have, have done with um, browsing content on the web uh, and which emails they've previously uh, responded to as well. Which kind of helps to make sure that 
discovery and buyer journey has been captured well and then also easily accessible to all the people and marketers who who then uh, can use it in their work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've seen that a lot of times, you know, sometimes you know very clearly that um, these are the things that your customers are using. You have data for it. These days there are video products, there are, um, you know, proper analytics products that tells you how much a particular customer is using your product. And then either you going into the customer success check-in call or going into this email campaign where you are telling them, either you're telling them what they are doing or you're telling them that they could do this, which they've already done. Both absolutely sounds very absurd. It, it feels like you don't know the customer at all. Rather, you can always trigger certain emails from the perspective that, hey, you're doing this, this and this, but people who leverage these four things together, they achieve X, Y, and Z. That becomes a much more helpful formula for people to say that, hey, this is how I can go about it, rather than either just giving data for data's sake or worse, not using it at all. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think it's just um, you you need to be able to be in the metaphorical shoes of the customer. So if they haven't done anything, their product, if they if you don't know anything about what brought them to the product, like so what source did they come from, what landing base did they come on, and they haven't done anything in the product, they probably just need educating about what the overall value proposition of the product is and not like these kind of pro features or, or finer details. So yeah, it makes sense to 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 trigger messaging based on what the user probably is thinking and perceiving about the product. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. All right, so uh, that brings us to the second section of the podcast, which we call the rapid fire section. Uh, and uh, this is something that uh, where I'm going to shoot five pointed questions at you. The questions may be short, the answers need not be. Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever comes to your mind, just shoot at me and uh, we'll see how it goes. Are you ready? Excellent. Here we go. All right. So here's uh, question number one. You are a master of analogies. You know, I have said this time and again. And uh, one of the analogies that I remember fondly from you is uh, arranging a dinner party when it comes to, uh, you know, when you define marketing orchestration. So do you still define that or you don't use it anymore? I do remember the analogy well, but I don't remember what it was for. So I'm such a master of analogies. I tend to think of them uh, (laughs) on the go. And then uh, if they're not exceptional, I tend to just uh, look for new ones. Uh, So it's, uh, so sorry to let you down on the first topic of my question. (laughs) I have no, I have a clue what we're talking about here, but uh, not a very good understanding of it. No, in the early days of uh, revenue marketing, you know, you used to speak about, uh, it's like, as as long as the party is small, you can just wing it on the go. But as your audience becomes bigger and bigger, you need to have a certain tactics and strategy and orchestration as to how it flows from one person to other. And uh, that's that's where you used to say that. I think I, actually that, that was actually, I think, an example of metaphor by Val Geisler, who is an email marketing expert. But yeah, yeah. now I remember yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. So here's uh, question number two, which you almost answered in our first half of the conversation, but still. Demand capture or demand gen, which one would you pick and why? It, the answer is, I think it depends. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's more profitable and you get quicker to results uh, if you do demand uh, capture. Uh, but then if you really want to make uh, outsized results and if you, uh, if you have the motivation and ambition and the budget, then generating demand, I think that's, this is how unicorns and decacorns are created. Harvesting demand is like what we all need to do, but I think generating demand is where the where the big elite players play. 
Right, right. No, absolutely. And uh, all right. So here's question number three. Your biggest learning from last year was that growth marketing is not going to be able to fix your pricing and positioning issues, which you alluded to uh, when you spoke about your uh, pricing change, increasing the price and all of that. So can you unpack that a little bit when you talk about it from a growth perspective? Yeah. Um, So the best thing we did in the whole of last year was uh, adjusting our prices uh, and messaging to the the real value our product was offering. So we were uh, mis-messaging the product and we were underselling us. So we were like, we were, we were selling our, giving away our product for too cheap. Uh, And then even, even if you were the best in growth marketing last year, we would still be, uh, we still would have been stuck in growth. So um, I think it's a lesson I learned was that you need to fix the basics before you can do growth marketing or like do the fundamentals, fix the fundamentals before you move on to taking these fundamentals to the market. So, uh, yeah, I think I would, and then your product changes and your customer changes. Uh, so I would think that's something you would need to revise uh, at least once per year, if not more frequently. Like, yeah. Are we, are we still serving the same customer? Uh, are we still, do we still have the same value proposition? And then uh, is the price still fair for that value proposition? For that customer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, in some of the SaaS companies that I've worked over the years, uh, I remember us changing the pricing page and the model almost every three months, you know, to keep testing um, how well it works. And the trouble with that is you also have to grandfather your existing customers into that and they shouldn't get a surprise. So mm-hmm. it's it, it gets more and more complex as you get deeper into that. Yeah, but I think I mean, but I think just very simply, what we raised our starting price for new customers by three times broadly, yeah. and then we we had fewer customers coming in, but the customers who were coming in, they were the better kind of customers. They took a longer time to set up the product correctly, so actually they we we charged them more, but they also got more value out of the product. And yeah. some of the customers who didn't have a big need anyway, who just thought that it's a affordable thing for this small need yeah. would have churned anyway uh, who were not the right customers for us anyway uh, yeah. we, we kept them out so all in all everybody was happier uh, by, by by us raising our prices three times yeah yeah so that also tells me that uh, you had observations about what are the top three or four features or activations that these people are doing that is going to keep them longer with you yeah for sure we we've, uh, we have like three uh, or four depending on how we count the core features and and they would activate at least at least two to to get the meaningful value out of, out of the product. If you only activate one feature, then uh, it's hard, I think, to keep them uh, as a customer for a long time. Right, right. Yeah, totally makes sense. All right, so here's um, question number four. If you're starting your uh, out-funnel journey all over from the scratch right now, what would be the first marketing channel that you would bet on? So first, I would raise the prices. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then I would probably raise the prices again. So marketing channel, uh, I think that if, if I was to launch Outfund today, I think I would broadly still use the same channel. So so it's optimized to uh, capturing demand and then kind of inbound and uh, certain PPC channels make a lot of sense for us. Uh, I would probably invest more into brand though. Take a, mm. take a longer time to to make sure that the brand and look and feel is just, it's just not just good, but great or, or uh, awesome. I don't like to use, I don't like to use the word awesome a lot, but 
I would like Gautama brand to be awesome, which currently it is not. Uh, and it's never like there's never enough time to to do it later. So I think it's um, it's good to do these things before you launch uh, to make sure that yeah. you're uh, that you you're on a good track later on. So yeah, I would I would keep the channel mix broadly what it is today, but I would take a longer time and uh, to enough to to make sure that the brand looks and feels nice, cute, awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Because the thought process never goes into the direction of brand in the initial days because in the first one year, you're at least trying to stay afloat and the focus is to get your first customer, first few set of customers. And uh, we are always trying to see what is working. But yeah, um, you know, companies that define that and are able to do that from the very beginning, I think they go a long way or probably they are uh, second time or third time entrepreneurs because they already get it. Cool. So here's the final rapid fire question. According to you, who is one person or probably one brand that you have a lot of respect for because they they generate quality content and uh, you started probably signing up for them because what they said was really, really valuable to the problem that you were trying to look for or solve for? I would well, slightly uh, misanswer your question. But uh, mm-hmm. one company which I really admire for content, but maybe more so for the brand, is, uh, is Klaus, uh, who do uh, customer support quality reviews, which yeah. sounds like really boring, right? But the way they've managed to build uh, a brand and then quirky content around it and like, quirky look and feel, it's just very well executed, very well done. And I know the, the people behind it as well. Uh, and all that uh, if I was to... like, And we don't have a need... To use the product because our support team is so small, we don't need like a, a tool to manage a support quality. But yeah, but the way they've uh, set up their uh, positioning and brand is just uh, too irresistible. I, I still may sign up for that one day, even if we don't have a need, just just for the brand and, and quirkiness around it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, we had somebody from uh, Klaus um, in the ABM Conversations podcast a few years back, and uh, I absolutely loved their perspective, and I I totally understand where they come from. Makes sense. Cool. So you hit all five questions um, out of the park, Andres. That's awesome. I answered four. I got, I got the first one wrong, right? So, <laughs> so not. Uh, so, uh, but next time I'll, I'll try to get five or six. Yeah, definitely. Why not? Let's definitely do that. And uh, so, yeah, for the listeners of the podcast today, you know, if they want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best place to find you? Where are you the most active? And how are you reachable? So I think Twitter and LinkedIn uh, are the best places to find me. So uh, my name for non-Estonian speakers, Andros Burde or Andros Burde is probably not a bit of a mouthful to uh, <laughs> to uh, to say, but I mean, it's going to be the show title. So I think look for that name. There's not too many Andros Burdes around, at least. It's easy to find me. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's something that's common between you and me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And uh, if you have to uh, share a parting message for the listeners today, uh, what would that be? I would um, ask them to share this podcast. I think what you're doing, uh, this uh, this new uh, South French podcast is great. It's going to have good, uh, all good, good questions, good people you invite uh, on the podcast to, uh, to help. Let's, uh, let's, let's help to make this speak. Oh, that's awesome. That's so kind of you. I never expected this kind of a message, but that really helps. Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Andres. I really had lots of fun in this conversation. Learned a lot. Probably the listeners have too. And uh, looking forward to connect with you once again sometime in the future. Thanks for your time today. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Good to chat with you. Bye. Bye.